Some of you know that I didn't grow up in a Lutheran church. I found myself at a Lutheran college and began attending worship services in the chapel when I was 18. And lots appealed to me about the sort of worship that I experienced there. The rich liturgy, the weekly communion, the sense of connection to Christians throughout the world. And believe it or not, I loved the practice of confession and forgiveness. I realize that might sound a little strange, but I grew up in a tradition where we rarely talked about sin, and I don't recall often being led in a ritual where we named it and received the promise of God's forgiveness. I found the honesty of all of it to be refreshing. I latched onto this practice quickly, and in particular, I latched onto the prayer that we used each week. And it began this way. Most merciful God, we confess that we are in bondage to sin and cannot free ourselves. Some of you could keep right on going and speak that whole prayer from memory. If you grew up in a Lutheran church, you might have some version of that prayer committed to memory the way I do. You might know it deep down in your bones. It immediately made sense to me when I first heard it. Those few words, worn smooth through time and the prayers of countless faithful people, seemed to express something that I knew to be right. That try as I might, there are countless ways in which I fall short. I lose my temper, I waste precious God-given time, I pay too much attention to my own perceived needs and not nearly enough to the very real needs of others. I fail to honor the image of God in others I meet. The list could just go on and on. I knew it already at 18, that no matter how hard I might try to be good, to live up to what I know to be right, I mess up time and again. I needed no convincing when it came to this time-tested prayer. It gave voice to what I knew to be true. Fast forward a few years to a seminary classroom, and the course was Luther's theology, taught by a lifelong Lutheran and a scholar who had been teaching this material for four decades or so, a man who struck me as both wise and deeply kind, And one day, something in the text that we were studying sent him off of his lecture into a sort of tangent. You know that prayer of confession we say every Sunday, the one that starts, we confess we're in bondage to sin and cannot free ourselves, he said. Yes, we all knew that prayer. You can't grow up Lutheran in the U.S. and not know that prayer. It's wrong, he said. We're no longer in bondage to sin. Jesus came to free us from it, and I don't know why we keep saying otherwise every single week. It's bad theology. I don't remember if he had a new proposal for the first line of that corporate prayer we all knew so well, but I've never forgotten his critique. And it came back to me this week, studying the passage that we have in front of us from Paul's letter to the Romans. My old professor might have had just this passage in mind when he was speaking that day. Paul says it right there, after all. Sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. Earlier in this chapter, Paul reminds the churches in Rome that they're joined to Christ in their baptism, really and truly joined to his life, his death, and his resurrection. We know that our old self was crucified with him, Paul writes, so that the body of sin might be destroyed and we might no longer be enslaved to sin. You hear that language? 
Our old self was crucified. We are no longer enslaved to sin. It's a done deal. The simple, breathtaking reality of the Christian life. This is who you are. Dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. The Swiss theologian Karl Barth told the story of a man on horseback making his way to a village on the shore of Lake Constance, where he intended to stay for the night. As he was traveling along, everything was going fine until the weather turned on him, and he found himself in the middle of a terrible blizzard. He had no choice but to press on as best he could, continuing his journey even though he could scarcely see a thing in front of him, until finally up ahead he saw the lights of a village and he knew he'd arrived. He was, of course, immensely relieved until he looked around and realized that this wasn't the village he had been trying to reach at all. He had, in fact, left the shoreline without realizing it, and he and his horse had crossed the frozen lake in the blizzard. He'd been in terrible danger the whole time. He could have gone through the ice at any moment, and now here he was, safe and warm on the other side. Bart used that story to speak about the reality of being saved by grace. We're no longer back there in the domain of sin and death. By the sheer grace of God, we have crossed to the other shore. We've been brought from death to life, safe and warm in the embrace of God. That's the radical promise of the gospel. It's a done deal, this simple and breathtaking reality of the Christian life. And yet, and yet, all that stuff I knew in my bones when I was 18, that stuff about how no matter how hard I try, I will never fully live up to what I know is right. I will never succeed in fully loving God with my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving my neighbor as myself. All of that is still true. If anything, I am even more aware of how impossible it is to free myself completely from the tangles of sin. I don't actually need any convincing that the presence of sin in my life is real. That on top of the shortcomings I know of, I'm also entangled in unconscious impulses and systemic injustices in ways I don't fully comprehend. I wouldn't need any convincing if you told me that I'm in bondage to sin and cannot free myself. That word makes perfect sense to me. It's in fact much more difficult to hear the word of grace the word that despite my very real shortcomings, despite the reality of sin in my life, I'm not defined by it or enslaved to it. It's much harder to hear the word that in fact, I am not stuck here, that in Christ I am dead to sin and alive to God, which is all the more reason I need to keep hearing it. Maybe the same is true for you. At the very start of his book, Tattoos on the Heart, Jesuit priest Greg Boyle gives what he calls his touchstone image for God. A friend of his named Bill had become the caretaker for his father who was dying of cancer. The father had become frail and dependent on his son to do just about everything for him. And these are Greg's words describing Bill's story. In the role reversal common to adult children who care for their dying parents, Bill would put his father to bed and then read him to sleep, exactly as his father had done for him in childhood. 
Bill would read from some novel, and his father would lie there, staring at his son, smiling. Bill was exhausted from the day's work and care and would plead with his dad. Look, here's the idea. I read to you, and you fall asleep. Bill's father would impishly apologize and dutifully close his eyes. But this wouldn't last long. Soon enough, Bill's father would pop one eye open and smile at his son. Bill would catch him and whine, now come on. And the father would again oblige until he couldn't anymore. And the other eye would pop open to catch a glimpse of his son. This went on and on. And after his father's death, Bill knew that this evening ritual was really a story of a father who just couldn't take his eyes off his kid. Greg concludes this story with a quote from Anthony DeMello. Behold the one beholding you and smiling. A smiling parent who can't take her eyes off her child is a beautiful image for God no matter what. But it's particularly moving at the start of this particular book. Greg Boyle's book is the story of his work with gang members in Los Angeles. His decades of ministry in the city are spent working with kids who are entangled in violence and drug use and destructive behaviors of all kinds. The presence of sin in their lives is as evident as can be. And yet he's committed to this image of God, which means he's committed to not allowing the sin to define them, to treating them with what he calls boundless compassion, to seeing them as beloved children whom God just keeps on beaming at. Behold the one beholding you and smiling. Being seen that way can transform us, gang member or not. It can loosen what's constricted in our lives and melt away shame and free us for the sort of courageous and compassionate action that's called for right now. Present yourselves to God, Paul says, as those who have been brought from death to life. It might not always feel that way. Maybe it feels much more like sin and death are holding on for dear life. Maybe it feels like you are stuck back on that other side. Present yourselves to God this way anyway, Paul says, with trust that grace is real, that you have been joined to Christ, that in his death and resurrection the power of sin has been broken. That's the audacious, incredible invitation Paul gives to the Christians in Rome and to us as well. It doesn't mean we stop recognizing the presence of sin in our lives, that we stop confessing and repenting and striving to live justly. Present your members to God as instruments of righteousness, Paul goes on to say. Present your hands and your feet and your voice for the work that's ahead. We take sin seriously, but we remember that we are no longer in bondage to it, that it is no match for the love of God that has claimed us. So friends, present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Maybe it's another way of saying, keep showing up, trusting in the promise of who you are in Christ. Behold the one beholding you and smiling. Amen. Amen.